We were young until we weren't, but the books stay the same. read this very optimistic book in this time uh yeah <laughs> okay wait now okay now i'm curious about your opinion so we have to actually start this <laughs> uh it's mine my, my turn right yes so hello welcome to reread the podcast where we reread books that we read when we were younger and by younger i mean 18 and under <laughs> and we see if they hold up or if our opinions have changed or what new insights we bring with our adult eyes yes and this time we are doing a wrinkle in time by madeline langle that's how you pronounce her name okay I have no idea. That is just how I've always pronounced it. I've always just done L'Engle, but it might be just L'Engle. L'Engle sounds good enough to me. Wrong, 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 wrong. I don't know when you read this book, but this was a very, very young book. I think I read this in sixth grade and basically remembered very, very little about this book. Other than this one part, because the teacher had us read the book out loud in class. And there's this one part I was reading and a character is like tis tisking, but it's spelled like T-C-H. And as a sixth, sixth grade me had no clue what that was about. So I went like titch titch. And I'm sure it sounded very awkward for everyone involved. <laughs> and I suppose the trauma from that moment drowned out all other memories of this book because I really did not remember anything else. Like nothing came back as you were reading? No. It, like, it didn't feel like vaguely familiar? No. <laughs> nothing. Wow. I really don't know. I guess I must have not been very impressed by this book as a child. Which I'll save my opinion for for in a second, but uh, the suspense. But you, yeah. So read this book in fifth grade with the class. I think a very similar experience, except I don't remember having any traumatic <laughs> reading out loud moments. Uh huh. I think my actual strongest memory of my initial read of this book is. Oh, the class watching the movie afterwards. And by this, I do not mean, obviously, the very recent movie. It was a TV adaptation. Uh, you know? Uh, yeah. And they really tried to, like, jazz up the end of this book and, like, make it into more of, like, a action scene. Mm. <laughs> Which, a choice, really. And, like, I remember the teacher asking... So, which ending do you think was stronger, the book or the movie? And I was like, well, the book, of course. Like, <laughs> duh. <laughs> I found the book ending very emotionally moving. And she was like, no, the movie is better. And I was like, you can't just tell me that. You're wrong. No, you stupid child. My opinion's <laughs> correct. Yeah, so that's like weirdly my my strongest memory of my initial read. But I really enjoyed the book and I ended up, I think my dad... Because I think we read the books together then afterwards. He 
bought the next four books in the series for me. And I thought for a long time there were only four books. Turns out there's five. <laughs> but, and it's the, called the Time Quintet. But I thought it was the Time Quartet. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, that, that quartet of books was were some of my favorite books growing up as a kid. Uh, I will say that I think of them, the third book which is a swiftly tilting planet is the one I reread the most and probably had the most impact on me. But I certainly fully remembered this book, had many fond memories of it, reread it the last time before going to see the more recent movie. Mm. There's a lot, there's a lot that I love. And before uh, talking about my feelings on this reread, I want to hear about yours. Uh, Yeah. Well, I mean, so Morgan, when, when I, (laughs) When I read the first 80 or so pages of this book, I was very excited because I came up with the greatest joke of all time, which is <laughs> this book is like if somebody said, what if the Chronicles of Narnia were good? And it would have been perfect because it would have been a zinger against C.S. Lewis. It would have uh, praised this book and it would have antagonized you. <laughs> And then I read the next 120 or so pages. And I I don't know how much this is a reflection of the actual quality of the book, but I was very disappointed that I could not just stick with that joke. <laughs> now I have to go with a lesser joke, like a wrinkle in time, more like a waste of time. <laughs> That's not entirely true. See, it, the joke doesn't work. It doesn't mm. work anymore, and I will hold that against this book for the rest of time. <laughs> we'll get more into this, obviously, but I think the first 80 pages are fantastic for setting up the characters, especially the character of Meg. I can't really think of a character off the top of my head in Children's Lit that's quite like Meg. This normal, plain-looking girl who has anxiety issues, clearly, (laughs) and is not really remarkable in any... Like, she's good at math, and she loves her brother, which the latter detail is very important, as we'll get to. And I really liked that, because I I always... I I think you might know this about me, but I, I really hate the Chosen One arc, especially in Children's Lit. It's so cheap and so easy to just say, oh, this person is the child of destiny and therefore they they will be awesome forever rather than a character just being normal and having to do heroic things like I love that. And then everything after that just falls apart because it's the most... It's just I I don't understand anything about what's <laughs> happening in this book and why it's happening. I like I get what's happening right. in the plot, but I don't understand why or what or how or what's it any important things <laughs> about why this book is happening. The philosophy driving this book feels so convoluted and it's just it it's a mess it feels like a big old mess and then also like 
we'll go into this more, but I feel like the book does Meg a huge disservice in the latter half of the novel. So I I just, I think I hate this book. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll see if we can work on that. Um, So to give my impressions on this reread, I think weirdly we actually have a a decent amount in common of our our feelings. Mm. I, it's always like this when I reread kids' books. Like I'll remember things being more lengthy than they are. Mm -hmm. So like, for me, the back half of this book, all the stuff that you felt like <laughs> wasn't that good. I remember being much more longer and drawn out in my head than it actually is. <laughs> and I think that this book certainly... One thing I, I do want to put out there for this book is that... So it was published in 1962. So we're still looking at a time in children's books where they just weren't allowed to be long. Right. You had to keep them decently short or like the publisher would not publish it. And so I do think that this book, you're right, has like a really good build up and then kind of rushes a lot of stuff in the back half. And so I definitely felt that on this reread. But that said, also, like you pointed out Meg being like this really interesting, dynamic female character, especially I think about this being coming out in 62. Like I think Meg Murray lays the groundwork for so many of the female characters we get to see in children's lit today. Like, she's one of the first girl characters I can remember reading about that, like, the book let be angry. Mm. Like, she's so angry. <laughs> and she, I think it's, it's worth saying that she's also just the fact that she is a girl is remarkable yeah. for that time. Well, yeah, in science fiction. Yeah. Like, um, I was reading, I just brushed up on, like, the publishing history of this. And, like, it got rejected by a lot of publishers. And one of the reasons was that it was a female-led story, science fiction story. That was not a thing. (laughs) So, yeah, no, Meg getting to be this, like, not pretty, unhappy, angry female character who, like, in the first chapter of the book, you're told she just got in a fight, (laughs) like, a physical fight. Uh Uh-huh was so amazing for me to read at, you know, 10 years old. And I still think that... Because you were a fighter yourself, which is a funny fact for me. A very angry little 10-year-old. I'm sorry. And like... No, like, uh, realistically, like, I, if, when I was in fifth grade, I had just moved to a new town. My parents were in the process of getting a divorce. Like, there was a lot of shit going on in my little 10-year-old life. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, absolutely. There, there was a lot about Meg Murray that, like, worked for me. And I think still does work. I think the character work in this book is still really good. And I think that I will disagree with you about the book doing Meg a disservice in the back half. I really like her character arc. So we can we can have a fight about that oh, later. Well, yes, we will. <laughs> but I think at this point we should probably summarize and you can make it clear exactly in the summary where the book loses you. Mm, I know exactly. Yeah, I can what. pretty much guess, but can't know for sure. Uh-huh. All right. So, we open on a dark and stormy night. And I will say, I actually do love the oh, like the use of the overused, like, it was a dark and stormy night. I think it's great in the first sentence of this book. The book instantly had me hooked. 
it was such an audacious start. It literally starts, it was a dark and stormy night. We're not it joking does. about that. <laughs> that was the first sentence. Michael's like, gonna do it. Hop <laughs> uh, on, bitch. We're going for a ride. Indeed. <laughs> but yeah, so we open on this dark and stormy night and 13-year-old, the Meg Murray, um, who is in the attic of her family's house in a very small town. It's interesting because, like, for the first five or so pages, it's really her sitting up there and kind of dwelling on her life and also dwelling on how she's worried that the storm is going to blow the roof <laughs> off the house and blow her with it. And, but it allows you to get sort of acquainted with uh, Meg and her family and their situation before even we really meet a lot of the other characters. So to, to give you all the sweet, sweet background on the Murrays, Meg is one of four children born to Mr. and Mrs. Murray, and the adult Murrays are both scientists, and uh, Mr. Murray has been missing for quite some time now, and they have no idea where he is. He was doing some work for the government, and all of a sudden, he stopped communicating with them. The government wouldn't give them any information about him. No idea where he's gone, but everyone in their very small little town thinks that he's run off with another woman. Meg is constantly dealing with, uh, you know, not only does she not fit in because, you know, she's a difficult 13-year-old girl <laughs> who, you know, has some struggles in terms of school because the way she learns isn't quite the way other people learn and also isn't, like, the kindest, sweetest, most feminine child ever. <laughs> But on top of all of that, she's constantly dealing with the townspeople trying to pry into her life and insinuating things about her family. And another source of the townspeople's scorn is her younger brother, Charles Wallace, who's like five. <laughs> and he is extremely precocious, but for years he didn't speak. Then, oh, like, when indeed. he started speaking... Sorry, what? <laughs> indeed, I was just going to say, it, it was a very relatable moment, because as people may or may not know, I didn't speak conversationally for the first seven years of my life. I think for Charles Wallace, it was the first four years, mm -hmm. which I'm just going to take, that means I'm even smarter than Charles Wallace. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Let's go with that. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so Charles Wallace uh, didn't speak for the first yeah, four or so years. And then when he started speaking, instantly was speaking complete sentences, very articulate. But he still doesn't like talking in front of people that he doesn't know and trust. So everyone in the town thinks he's an idiot. And so there's a lot of comments about that as well. And the fight that May got into had been one to defend Charles Wallace. So... That's kind of the situation Meg is in. She's deeply unhappy. She misses her dad. All of this stuff is going on. Her other two brothers, um, who aren't really crucial to the story, but do show up in later books. And so I, I do have a lot of fondness for them. They're twins. Um, and they're kind of like the quote unquote normal ones, or at least, and Meg makes a comment about this, and I will spoiler alert everyone that in later books, this is proved to be true. They're good at pretending to be normal. Mm. They're very good at faking it and fitting in. And their names are Sandy and it might be Dennis, but I've always pronounced it Denny's. Denny's, <laughs> yeah. It's spelled D-E-N-N-Y-S. So I read it as Denny's, and that's what I'm rolling with. If it's Dennis, I don't care. Denice. Is there a D-nice? 
Denise! Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so Meg is, you know, thinking about all of this during the storm and she can't get to sleep. So she decides to go down and have some hot coca or something. And who's down there already? Already making things, the hot coca and getting sandwiches ready. But Charles Wallace, who is implied to have some sort of like intuition about Meg and like knew she was going to come down. And then Mrs. Murray joins them shortly afterwards, and they're discussing things when all of a sudden, <laughs> someone shows up banging at the door. And this person turns out to be Mrs. Wetsit, who Charles Wallace has previously acquainted himself with, and she's a very interesting character, just covered in, like, just tons of bizarre clothing, layered in a way that, like, no human being would naturally put together. They're kind of baffled by her randomly showing up, but they let her in and, and give her some food and stuff, and they have a very odd conversation, um, at the end of which, Mrs. Wetsit tells Mrs. Murray uh, that, by the way, there is such thing as a tesseract. Above? And then she just pieces out. Mrs. Murray looks very alarmed or shocked by this. The kids aren't able to figure out in the moment what a tesseract is. Mrs. Murray keeps dodging the questions, but they know it has something to do with her work with their dad. So the next day, Meg and Charles Wallace are walking their dog, Fortebras, and they run into, or I think, yeah, Charles Wallace is like taking her to the house where Mrs. Watson is staying. And on their way there, they run into Calvin O'Keefe, who is another student at Meg's school. He's like a number of grades above her but he's not that much older than her he skipped grades i think he's it says he's 14 yeah but he's like a junior and charles Wallace is like what are you doing here <laughs> and calvin's like what are you doing here also i thought you couldn't talk <laughs> they end up having a conversation which calvin reveals that he basically gets these like premonitions or instincts and he always obeys them when he gets them, and he'd gotten one this day, that he had to go to, like, the old weird house in the woods. Charles Wallace is like, okay, seems legit. You can come with us. Comes <laughs> <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> Gotta tag along with the 13-year-old and 5-year-old. Sure. Why not? So they go to the house, and there they meet one of Mrs. What's-its friends, Mrs. Who. A lot of the conversations in this are really hard to describe because yeah. they just kind of jump all over the place because they're just a whole bunch of very eccentric people uh -huh. talking kind of around problems. But Mrs. Who is basically like, hey, Charles Wallace, that thing we're going to do, got to be soon. <laughs> Charles Wallace is like, okay. Meg's like, what is going on? Calvin's like, what is going on? But Calvin's also just pumped because like, Calvin also, like Sandy's and Denny's, spends most of his time pretending to be normal. And now he's like, I finally feel like I fit in with these weird people. <laughs> it's also said that, like, his home life is less than ideal. Like, he lives in a household of, I, I don't know, 10 or something kids. His parents are deadbeats or something like that. And it's just not, it's not well suited for someone like him. Yeah. So they go back, they have dinner at the Murray's place. Calvin and Meg bond a lot. It's cute. Quote unquote, but sure. Well, a lot <laughs> in the context of this very short book that packs just a lot into it. And then uh, at the end of Calvin and Meg bonding time, 
Mrs. What's It and Mrs. Who and the last of the Mrs. W's and Mrs. Witch show up and they're like, time to go, kids. <laughs> and they take Charles Wallace, Meg, and Calvin away somehow. <laughs> this is not explained beforehand <laughs> how they do this, but they all of a sudden are taken to another place. And this place, they're told, is the planet Uriel. And they, it takes them a while to explain how they get there, but I'm just going to explain Tesseracts right now, because why not? So yeah, so they get them there through a Tesseract, and um, I will say, like, this was my first expl- explanation of the, like, idea of Tesserine, and mm-hmm. that whole, like, I know really overdone thing now, where it's like, you know, the line, and then you fold it, and that explanation. I want to say this was one of the first explanations ever that was done that way, or at least that this popularized it. And that's why we keep getting that explanation and everything else. But I can't actually know that for sure. And I could be totally wrong. But basically, like, Tesserine is like, <sighs> do you want to do this? Do you want to give? Yeah, I could give it a shot. So the idea of Tesserine is that there's a the space-time continuum, you basically just fold that. So the, the idea is that a line, the quickest way from point A to point B is a line, and they're like, no, what you do is you fold the line so that point A and point B meet, and you you arrive at this new place in no time at all. Because they actually, when they describe tessering, it's almost like Meg ceases to exist, like her body, her physical corporeal form ceases to exist, and then she passes back into time and resumes existence. It's not important if it makes sense or not, as it's just a way of explaining explaining why they can get from point A to point B in less than zero seconds. I will say I do actually think their explanation is pretty good. <laughs> obviously i'm not sure it actually makes real sense but like there's not only the line and the fold thing with the ant which are actually illustrated yeah which i think thought was nice for kids but then they (laughs) go through like what's the first dimension it's a line the second dimension is you square the line it's a flat square and then it's a cube and then the fourth dimension is the cube squared which is time and then the fifth dimension is that squared which is a tesseract yeah and i was like Oh, okay. I don't really understand that, but this is a very like basic way to lay out this for a kid. <laughs> and for like adults who don't understand science like me. I think there's a moment in the book where like it might be about the Tesseract, but it might also be about something else where like Meg's like, I got it for a split second, it's gone now, but I got it for that second. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's how I feel every time the Tesseract <laughs> is explained. For like a second I understand it and then it goes. But yeah, so they are on the planet Uriel via Tesserine. And uh, this is mostly a stop-off point so the Mrs. W's can reveal that the universe is under attack. Gasp. By this evil dark cloud. Yes. (laughs) They, like, call it the black thing, and they, like, go fly up. Mrs. What's-It transforms into, like, this, like, cool centauri sort of thing and flies them up so they can see like a planet that is being attacked by this black thing and i think we can pretty much agree the black thing is evil it is just a physical manifestation of evil Mm. Uh, but what is it morgan what is it doing 
What is its purpose? What is it there for? It's evil. Oh. <laughs> I don't know what more you want. So why is, yeah, why is it evil? Because it's evil. Oh, well, that clears everything up. To be fair, they are not directly going to fight this particular incarnation of evil. And we do get more time spent on the actual incarnation of this they are fighting. Mm-hmm. But yes, they go up, they see that, they're like, uh, okay. And they're, Mrs. W's are like, so, Meg, Charles Wallace, your dad <laughs> is on a planet that has been taken over by the Black Thing. And we need you to go get him. And they're like, okay, sounds reasonable. I will say, I do love that, like, Charles Wallace is five. Why is he doing this? Why is anyone? Like, he is a genius, absolutely. Well, it's also implied. He's also five. So it seems to be suggested in this book that the Mrs. What's-It, Mrs. Who, and Mrs. Which are some kind of angels. Or at least... Figures that we would consider, because we should make it clear, this text is very Christian. Yes. So they they serve as angelic figures. And it's implied Charles Wallace is some kind of next step in the evolution of humans that brings him closer to these angelic figures. That keeps getting reiterated throughout the book, like when they confronts uh, spoilers uh when they confront the evil thing at the end there's a, a line that amuses me they're doing like some weird like charles wallace and this evil thing are doing some weird mind meld battle thing and meg is like no let me do it and the evil thing is like your brain would literally explode if you tried only charles wallace is advanced enough yeah that's presumably so, why he's here it is multiple times insinuated that charles wells i don't even know if it's like the next evolutionary step and i will say we can get into how christianity is presented in this book because well it is i agree very christian which is also something that on this reread i'd forgotten how christian it was i think that it it does do some interesting things with that like yeah the mrs w's are kind of implied to be angels essentially but like also mrs what's it is revealed to have formerly been a star who like gave up essentially her stardom in a fight with the black thing there's some just we don't get really answers <laughs> about what exactly they are <laughs> but there's certainly like this idea that like charles wallace has this way of understanding things that is beyond normal human capacity that said Calvin is also implied to have some of this, just not to the level of Charles Wallace. So it's not like that Charles Wallace is the only super special child. Yeah. Just that he is the most special. <laughs> so there, there is a reason for Charles Wallace to be here. But I will say, like in terms of you talking about not liking the Chosen One archetype, I think Charles Wallace is a kind of cool subversion of that. But we'll get into that. Yeah. <laughs> so after Uriel, uh, they go to visit... The Happy Medium, which is... <sighs> Sorry. <laughs> Keep your commentary to yourself during the summary. I'm assuming, by the way, the point at which the book lost you was when they went to Uriel? Yes, about halfway through when they... Uh, the quote-unquote attempt to explain the black thing. 
it started to lose me, I, I can get more into this because it's not like a straight up like I rejected the book right. from this moment. <laughs> I started to say, wait, what? And then the book just kept moving on. Right. They go to see the happy medium who has this crystal ball that like allows them to see things. And this is a way for them to get more information before they go and attack. And so one of the things that's revealed to them during this is the whole thing about Mrs. What's it being a star. Also that Earth is under attack by the Black Thing. Then they're also shown their families back home. Which is when we're fully revealed the extent to which like Calvin's home life is not good. Yeah. And after that, we go to Kamataz. Kamazots. Kamaz. I always say Kamataz. I know that's not the way it actually looks. <laughs> it's it's actually I think Kamazots. But I know I'm gonna screw up multiple times because I've been mispronouncing it for like over a decade. I apologize. Stick with me and my mispronunciation of this place. This is where Mr. Murray's being imprisoned and they, the three kids, have to go in and retrieve him. In order to, like, help them do this, the Mrs. W's give each of them gifts. It's like a quest thing. I really like the setup of it, but I, I'm fully aware it's played into, like, fairy tale tropes that don't necessarily fit with the rest of this. And I'm not going to go through the gifts that each of them are given, but they do all end up playing their part. But most significantly, Mrs. Who gives Meg her glasses. Mrs. What's it, I believe, warns Charles Wallace, like, not to, like, try and do everything by himself. And is it Mrs. Who? I forget which one tells Calvin that his gift is communication. Mm. I would say those are the most well, important ones, but uh, hold. <laughs> it's a value judgment. Indeed. <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong, um, but I also think there's Meg is given another quote unquote gift, which is the gift of her faults. Yes. Mrs. What's it gives Meg her faults. And Meg is like, what? <laughs> uh, bah? I actually really love this moment because it plays into this this nice theme of individuality conformity like anti-conformity that's that's a big part of this book and it's a great payoff for the first 60 or so pages of setup where meg is constantly trying to downplay her faults no i'm glad you brought that one up because that is one of my favorites too <laughs> and it also segues nicely into camazots itself where, like, you're talking about individuality versus conformity. The whole theme of Kamazots is conformity. Everyone does everything the exact same way at the exact same time. Everything is, like, they walk in, and it's one of the most iconic, if not the most iconic scene from this book, which is why the trailers for the new movie played pretty heavily on it. But it's the scene of all of these little boys outside standing in the exact same spot in front of like identical houses bouncing their balls identical balls in perfect time like totally synchronized very creepy so the three kids meander around trying to figure out what the is going on eventually they make their way down to essentially like the capitol building and 
get themselves inside and also get themselves reported like five million times <laughs> because they don't have any of their proper paperwork and they clearly are not conforming to the way things are supposed to be. So they're very quickly led to this man who has red eyes <laughs> and we don't really learn much more about him. He plays some mind games with them and he is particularly interested in Charles Wallace and really wants Charles Wallace to essentially try and use his like special extra powers of communication or understanding or whatever that thing he has is to, to like try and get the red-eyed man and Charles Wallace tries to do this once but Meg gets freaked out and literally like football tackles him <laughs> uh -huh. and that snaps him out of it and then he tries to do it a second time even though Meg really doesn't want him to do it and he gets fully taken in and essentially merges with it, capital I, capital T, which is the thing in charge of all of this. Um, obviously, Meg is really f***ing upset. Because uh, <laughs> her baby brother just got essentially mind-eaten. It's hard to describe, but like he, when he's talking now, it's clearly not Charles Wallace talking. It's something else talking through him. And he's like, all right, time to take you guys to it or to see your dad. The point is, he starts taking them further into the building. They go along because, like, what the fuck else are they going to do? Um, he ends up taking them to Mr. Murray, who's been imprisoned. And there's some, like, interesting things on the way there where, like, they go through walls because by Charles Wallace rearranging all the atoms to, like, smush together. Mm -hmm. Which is also, I believe, I, there's some cool science stuff in this book that, like, made me understand scientific concepts that, like, I don't know, as a 10-year-old I wouldn't normally have understood. Like, the idea of how much, like, extra space there is in things, and then if you compress the atoms, you can... Anyhow, I'm gonna stop nerding out. I just... I don't normally like science, so I always enjoy when a book can explain a science thing to me that, like... How can you not I like would science? Otherwise, I... To be fair, I did like chemistry a lot, but that's because it was mostly math, and I like math much better. But mm. generally, at least with the way science is taught, I don't find it very intuitive for, like, me to understand. That's fair. So... I didn't enjoy science because, like, it was hard for me to learn. <laughs> I suppose that's very fitting for this story because, uh, much like C.S. Lewis, Langle, 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 whatever, she's not a big fan of the contemporary schooling system that <laughs> yes. in her life. Yes. <laughs> The schools must have been really bad in, like, the 40s and 50s. They must have been really bad. <laughs> Everyone's traumatized. I just think it's one of those things where it's always, it's like complaining about the DMV. Everybody, it's just, mm. a, it's an easy target. Okay, we're, we keep interrupting <laughs> the summary. It's going to take really long. It's a really short <laughs> book, so I feel bad. Uh. They come upon Mr. Murray. He's trapped in there. They can't get in to see him. He can't see that they're out there until Meg is like, Mrs. Who's glasses? And she puts them on and suddenly she's able to travel through the walls. So she jumps into her dad. And you know what? I'm sorry. I'm going to pause again here because I will say <laughs> the most recent movie, I don't really recommend anyone watch it except for the scene of Meg reuniting with Mr. Murray, which is beautifully done. It's like this pause in the franticness of the movie and they take their time to like let this reunion be just so emotional and it's really beautiful and the actress who plays Meg and Chris Pine who plays her dad do a fantastic <laughs> job 
in the book, reunion is slightly shorter. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you don't say. They have very brief reunion. It's understandable that it's shorter because, like, there is a (laughs) ton going on. Charles Wallace has just been mind-eaten. Yeah. Mr. Murray gets them both out of the little prison thing using the glasses. Charles Wallace is like, it is not going to be pleased. I'm going to take you to it now. And Mr. Murray's like, Meg won't be able to deal with that. And Charles Wallace is like, ha, 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 I know. <laughs> um, and by Charles Wallace, I mean the thing speaking through Charles Wallace. The child formerly known as Charles Wallace. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and I, you know what? This might have been previously, but I want to say it's at this part where Calvin tries to use his super communication skills to get through to Charles Wallace. And it like almost works. Almost there. Stay on target. But then Charles Wallace is like, no, I'm with it now. Suck it, Calvin. <laughs> so he takes them to it. And it turns out to be this giant evil disembodied brain (laughs) and the pulse of it is so loud and so invasive that that's how it like gets to you and makes you conform to it so there's this like i think really tense scene of them trying to resist falling into the rhythm of it and so they try first like nursery rhymes uh, but that's too rhythmic Meg tries to do math, but that also ends up falling into the rhythm, and it starts getting more and more frantic and desperate until uh, Mr. Murray is forced to tesser her away to save her from getting taken by it. And uh, Mr. Murray's not a very good tesserer. Human beings have only learned about tesserine and the tesseract, like, recently. Like, part of his whole job was figuring that out, and he screwed up so badly on his first tesser that he ended up on Kamazots mm-hmm. and, like, got into this entire situation. It's not a pleasant experience for Meg. She's, like, totally paralyzed when they come through. She's never been very good at, like, dealing with tesserine, but, like, this time's really bad for her. And they're on this planet they don't know where. Some of the inhabitants of the planet show up. I should say Calvin is also there. Mr. Murray did manage to grab Calvin and also take him. (laughs) So it is Calvin, Mr. Murray, and Meg on this planet. And some of the inhabitants show up and they're like these weird... They're so weird to describe, um, but essentially have like lots of like tendril things. Uh, They're like squid-like? I don't know. They defy explanation. Like, Langle does give one, (laughs) and hers is better than what both of us just tried to do, but, (laughs) you know, the the point is mostly that, like, they have lots of tentacle things, or tendril things. It is uh, established that neither of them are bad guys. (laughs) Like, there's this whole thing where they're like, are you evil? Are you evil? No. (laughs) But they agree to help Meg and Calvin and Mr. Murray recuperate. Meg is especially having a tough time because essentially, like, she almost got taken by it and then they had to test her through the black thing to, like, get out. Essentially, it's like it has infected her a little bit. She's very angry at her dad for leaving Charles Wallace behind. She's very angry at a lot of things, which, like, (laughs) to be fair, she was before, but this has really amped up her anger. So Meg is uh, taken care of by one of the aliens on this planet who it's interesting because like their languages are so totally different and these creatures are kind of trying to sort of telepathically understand what the hell they're saying they understand calvin best because once again calvin's like kind of special but 
There's a lot of amusing instances of them trying to communicate things like these creatures don't see. So like Meg's trying to explain what light is and they're like, what? (laughs) (laughs) So like uh, the creature who takes care of her ends up naming herself Aunt Beast because that's just like the combination of words that gets the closest to what the relationship she's trying to have with Meg is. And it's, it's cute. It's cute. It's cute. Yeah. I After recovering for some time, Meg reunites with Calvin and her dad, and they're trying to figure out what to do. Uh, the Mrs. W's show up in kind of like not full form, and they're basically like, well, Meg, you got to go back and get Charles Wallace. And Meg at first is is resistant to this, but comes to see that it's true that she she's in essence like if Calvin knew Charles Wallace better and loved him the way I do, it would make sense for Calvin to go because Calvin's more like equipped naturally to do this. But like she's the only one who knows Charles Wallace and could potentially save him. And one of the things that happens during her time is that she has to accept that her like having her dad back isn't automatically going to fix everything, that she's still going to have to like stand on her own. So the Mrs. W's take her back to Kamazats and uh, they once again give her gifts. The most significant one this time being Mrs. What's It saying like, Meg, I give you my love. So Meg goes back. She goes straight up to that brain. <laughs> and... <laughs> It's a pretty tense battle because, again, Meg is not super well equipped to deal with this. But uh, there are a couple of moments where, like, she has some breakthroughs. And then finally, it makes this crucial mistake and tells her that Mrs. Wetsit doesn't love her. And then she's like, no, I know that's not true. Mrs. Wetsit loves me. And then she realizes that what it doesn't have and what it can't comprehend is love. And so she looks at Charles Wallace and she just lets herself feel all the love she has for Charles Wallace and lets that kind of flow through her and she tells that to him and that finally is able to pull him free from its grasp. They are tessered away, back to Earth, along with Mr. Murray and Calvin. They just appear in the backyard only like a second or two after they left in the first place because tessering and the family is reunited and yay. And it's over. That was a really long summary for a very short book. Well, it's a very it's a very complex book. There there are a lot of things going on and a lot of themes. So many themes. A lot of issues. A lot of problems. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot. There is Where a lot. Where shall we start? Um Shall we start with Meg? We we should start with Meg. Meg is great, uh, for the reasons that we've already talked about. It's hard for me because I, I, I'm so disappointed by the end of the book that it somewhat spoils her character for me, but she really is great because what I really like, and I can totally see why this book is introduced to us in elementary school, but it's like, she's dealing with a lot of issues that I think most kids deal with to some degree. Self-esteem issues, not feeling pretty, not feeling confident in herself, feeling ostracized and left out and and being constantly put down. Like, there are 
so many moments in here where people say some variation of like, your parents are geniuses. Why can't you be smart like them? Why are you failing at school? Why can't you fit in? Oh man, that's nice to see in a book like this. And actually the confrontation with the brain, the whole philosophy of this brain, of the of it, is that individuality leads to pain. So the way to get rid of pain is to suppress individuality. And one of the arguments, I guess, that it uses is that Meg is constantly trying to fit in, trying to conform. And there's a line in there where she's like, yeah, I want to be normal, but I don't want to be like everybody else. A lesser book would have the kid gung-ho completely embrace her individuality and say like, I love that I'm different now and all my anxieties and insecurities are gone because I've embraced myself. But the book doesn't, it it'll, allows Meg to still be an insecure teenager because she is in fact still an insecure teenager. She just learns something about herself that mm -hmm. sets the foundation going forward where she can love herself a little bit more. I do really like that element. And I think that's obviously that's a very important thing to tell kids. And um, I think Langle does a great job at never speaking down to her readers. The vocab alone. <laughs> but it also takes steps to like, sometimes it will define the words for you. So you actually know like, okay. And mm -hmm. also <laughs> Mrs. I don't think you mentioned this detail, but Mrs. Who is cut. Like the way she communicates is by oh, quoting other people. And she's quoting constantly in different languages, which she then translates. You're constantly learning as you're reading this book, but you're learning in a way where you don't realize you're learning, which is the best way to learn. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, this was the first... So, <laughs> sorry, this is going to be a tangent, small tangent, but it was really cool on this reread. One of the things that Mrs. Who references a lot and actually ends up playing a pretty big role is uh, Shakespeare's The Tempest. Mm -hmm. She quotes from it, like, multiple times, and then one of her, like, gifts to Calvin, I believe, is a quote from The Tempest. I hadn't read The Tempest until a couple months ago, so, like, my only knowledge of The Tempest was, like, <laughs> you know, general pop culture knowledge, but then this book. And this is the first time I read this book since reading The Tempest, and I was like, oh, Ariel, the cloven pine, I understand now. <laughs> It does say something about Langle's ability to write and incorporate these things that, like, I still understood what was going on as a kid, even without knowledge of what the, f the Tempest was. Mm -hmm. It could have been a bigger issue where, like, with looking back at C.S. Lewis, the constant mm -hmm. references he makes, and this book isn't <laughs> immune to that sort of thing. But at the very least, it's presented in a very fun fashion. So even when the reference is just kind of nonsensical, it's presented in a fantastical way or in a funny way or in a silly way or some kind of way that makes it tolerable. There's one part that, oh, I really rolled my eyeballs when they were on <laughs> Uriel. Yeah. The, there's is these like centaurs. Yes. Okay. Yeah, the centaur creatures are singing this song. One of the characters, I think it's Charles Wallace. Uh, it doesn't matter. One of them asks, can you translate that to Mrs. Watson? 
and Mrs. Watson, it's like, there's no way I can possibly translate it. And man, if the book had just left it at that, that would have been perfect. But then Charles Wallace insists, no, let me help, blah, 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 blah. And then we do get a translation. <sighs> it, do you want me? I have it in front of me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Sing unto the Lord a new song and his praise from the end of the earth, ye that go down to the sea and all that, that is therein, the isles and the inhabitants thereof. Let the wilderness and the cities thereof lift their voice. Let the inhabitants of the rocks sing. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory unto the Lord. Which, if you don't know, is an actual passage from the bible i think it's isaiah 42 i want to say it's around there oh cool i didn't know not cool because i've never read the bible well no now you <laughs> cool that you just answered a question i've had for a decade and a half because i've never bothered to look it up i have never been sure whether this was an actual hymn or line from the bible or whether she just made it up but yes i also think that that is I would probably argue that Uriel is the worst part of the book. <laughs> it's certainly the most religious part of the book, in my opinion. And I think that everything they do there, they could have just done in the happy medium place. And I think it happening with the happy medium would have made more sense because the whole happy medium thing is vaguely foreshadowed because people keep telling Meg that she needs to find a happy medium. Mm. Because she's really... Like, she's described in multiple ways, not just emotionally, but intellectually. It's very, like, one-sided. So, like, there's this really funny part of the book where Calvin is finding out that Meg's really good at math. Mm -hmm. So he asks her all these math questions, <laughs> which she aces. Yeah. And then he's like, by what countries is Peru bound? And Meg's like, I haven't the faintest idea. I think it's in South America somewhere. He's like, what's the capital of New York? Uh. Well, New York City, of course. <laughs> Who wrote Boswell's Life of Johnson? Oh, Calvin, I'm not any good at English. <laughs> and then Calvin groaned and turned to Mrs. Murray. I see what you mean. Her, I would not want to teach. And then Mrs. Murray says, she's a little one-sided, I grant you. So there's that. And then like in terms of her emotions, she vacillates between these very like extreme feelings. So yeah, there's this whole idea that she needs to find a happy medium. And then they go and visit the actual happy medium. And... I've always been a little bummed they don't do more with that. I think that, that that's really... They could have done everything at the Happy Medium. They didn't need to go to Uriel. And then we wouldn't have some of the like most religious parts of the book that just aren't that necessary. <laughs> I don't mind Uriel. It's just that it's too much, which is ironic because this book... So much of the latter half of this book just bum rushes through the story. And that's probably my biggest fault with everything about this book. Mm. But you could have excised so many bits from that scene and it would have been so much better. I, I'm reminded of the moment in Lord of the Rings where they're in Lothlorien and uh, the Fellowship is overhearing the song that the elves are singing lamenting Gandalf's death. And they ask... Legolas to translate it and he's like I don't have the heart to do it thank god because nothing that he could have produced would have been able to match the kind of grief that's suggested just by the fact that he he can't translate it so if you had that same kind of feel here with Uriel and this song that the centaurs are singing if she had just left the centaur song untranslated, it would have been so much more beautiful. 
Instead, it's just a groan for me. But yeah, getting back to, to Meg for a second, because I do want to talk about the happy medium. That's probably my least favorite part of the book. So, <laughs> but yeah, I do think there's another line that's said about Meg that I find really interesting that gets at that sort of happy medium idea. I think it's Charles Wallace talking about her, where he says that Meg is like kind of like him. Like, she's in the middle between right. being quote-unquote normal and being like Charles Wallace. Right, and then she's like, not fish or fowl or something. Yeah, and so... Or like, <laughs> smoked herring? I don't remember. <laughs> um, but it's like a very nice illustration of just like her feeling like she doesn't fit in anywhere. And she's constantly looking at her mom, who seems so well contained like she meg is devastated over her father's disappearance and it's something that weighs on her constantly she can't control her feelings about it she's always she feels like she's always falling victim to her own feelings and she looks at her mom who seems so in control and restrained and she's like why can't i be like mom and actually that's one of the nice tender moments with calvin is Meg opening up about this anxiety of hers, feeling like she can't, she's just out of control. And Calvin makes like probably an obvious, but a helpful remark that Meg is a different person. So of course she's going to react differently. It's not a fault against her that she is operating differently. She's just different. And I think this is kind of a fault with the mom that the book doesn't really get into, but I'm not going to like fault the book for it. I think it's just kind of something interesting that you can delve into. But the fact that the parents, <laughs> uh, Meg's parents don't seem to be the best parents, because like Meg's mom doesn't necessarily do a very good job of assuring Meg that like, hey, you're different, you're feeling what you're feeling, and that's okay. She's just like very distant, which is honestly probably part of the problem here. Why? Meg is so feels so out of sorts and I guess this book actually does um because Calvin's parents aren't that great either so I maybe it's just a uh, the daddy issues well, and the mommy issues are uh, alive and well in this book I will say I think that yeah and this is Murray's I, I don't even want to say defense because I think it's just like to present a little more about what's going on there I don't think we actually said in the summary how long Mr. Murray's been gone for he left, or he went missing when Charles Wallace was, like, a baby. So it's been years, and we're told that Mrs. Murray still writes him letters every night and sends them, and, like, she clearly hasn't allowed herself or really allowed the rest of the family to move beyond his disappearance, Um, which, like, I understand it's hard to do, and it's fair because, like, he wasn't actually dead, so, but, like, uh, I'm sorry, if someone's gone for like four years <laughs> and the government will not tell you where they are, you might want to like, I think that, and Mrs. Murray does like assure, makes complaint about how she looks and then Mrs. Murray's like, you're not going to look like a 13 year old forever, essentially. I didn't look like how I look now when I was your age. So she, she does give her some assurance, but I think that part of the problem with Mrs. Murray and with the entire family, and, and I think you see this 
I think you really have to read between the lines on this one. But like Charles Wallace talks about like how to some extent he takes care of Meg and Mrs. Murray because emotionally, at least, Uh Mrs. Murray is not coping with any of this well. And Meg's clearly not. And the twins are coping with this by pretending to be normal. Like, we're told they're C-plus students or something, essentially. And, like, uh, again, spoilers for later books, I'm pretty sure Sandy goes on to be a doctor and Denny's goes on to be a history professor. Like, they're really bright, too, just not, like, Meg Charles Wallace levels. So they're coping with all of this by pretending to be the most average people they can be. So, like, yes, I agree. The book doesn't straight up tell you any of these things. But, yeah, Mrs. Murray is not... Dealing with her husband being gone well, dealing with being left with her kids on her own, any of it well. Certainly, Calvin's family is, like, far worse. (laughs) But that also gets more nuanced in later books in interesting ways, which is good because I personally find the depiction in this kind of problematic in terms of classism, but, um... Well, do you, since we're on that subject, do you wish to expand on that? Oh, I still want to talk about Vague, uh, but we can come back. I mean, because it doesn't, it's not going to take much to talk about Calvin. So the Murrays are in a small town in, I want to say somewhere in New England. And the Murrays are by far some of the more affluent, well-educated people in the town. We're told that this house was previously like their summer home. Calvin's family, on the other hand, is poor. Ten kids, what were shown... Um, when the happy medium shows Calvin's family is Calvin's mom, who is described as being like really ugly with missing teeth and very much juxtaposed against the absolutely beautiful Mrs. Murray whacking one of her kids with a wooden spoon. And it's very much like a depiction of, it's like very, (laughs) it felt very Dickensian to me Uh in that way of like, (laughs) this is what the, you know, Horrible poor look like. I wouldn't even give it <laughs> that much praise. It's more like uh, the way class is depicted in like idiocracy. It's just like a shameless uh, parody. And of course, it's like the O'Keefe's, right? They're this like Irish kind of background. And so it's playing on that, it feels like as well. It's not great for a book that really takes so much effort to humanize difference it really kind of takes the easy way out with the depiction of the O'Keefe's at least in this book yeah I'll take your word that they expand on it a little bit more in the next books yeah I will say I think I think Madeline Langle realized what she did um and Mrs. O'Keefe plays a huge role in the third book and you find out about her childhood and it completely recontextualizes everything and gives her a lot of nuance but in this book alone it's really bad yeah and it's certainly like calvin describes himself a change in gene resulting in the appearance in the offspring of a character which is not present in the parents but which is potentially transmissible to its offspring and then he goes to the murray's house and he's like i feel like i'm finally coming home so there's like very much this idea that like somehow calvin just like (laughs) was not meant to be with the family he was born into, and his Mm. real family was meant to be the Murrays, and I didn't mention this at all in the summary, but Calvin and Meg, in essence, fall in love, and he kisses her before she goes off to battle it. So dumb. It's not like a huge (laughs) plot point. 
I I don't mind it. It's fine. It's it's not like it's one. Of I the, don't. Mm. What? No, no. I'm sorry. You finish your thought. I was just gonna say. I think that because you do get it some okay a decent amount in the context of this book, which is very short of them bonding, and obviously they're in pretty extraordinary circumstances. It doesn't bother me. It's not like she goes into the final battle and is like. And now that Calvin's kissed me on the lips, mm. I can do this. Like, Indeed. it's kind of just something that happens. Now I understand love because a boy <laughs> has kissed me. Yeah. Right. But that that doesn't happen. And I think that would have made me dislike it. But it's just kind of something like he kisses her and she's like, yep. How was it? Wet. I mean, she was sort of crying. And then she goes off and does her thing and doesn't like think about it. Like, that's. I think that that's why I don't mind it. Like, I buy that they're very, they've been very bonded by this experience. And there's like some romantic hint of that before they even head off into the unknown. And I agree it's not necessary, but it doesn't like make me angry that it's there. <laughs> and they develop on it in later books in ways that I find satisfying. And obviously, like, Calvin and Meg get married and blah, blah, blah. But I, I'm not mad about it. <laughs> It's interesting because the, so much of this book, the relationship between them is interesting. And I do like the moment they share where Meg just opens up about her grief. It's contrasted with a moment earlier where Meg sits down with the principal of the school who's mm -hmm. basically saying, you suck at school. Pick up your game, man. And at the end of the conversation, he asks in a, in a way that's suggested to be very gossipy. Have you heard any news about your dad? It just comes off as so gross and conniving yeah. and, and really manipulative that this full <laughs> grown adult is asking a 13 year old girl like, hey, your dad who's been gone for three, four years ever heard anything about him so I can share it with my family when I get home. So then you have Calvin in this moment where they're sitting down, uh, Calvin and Meg. He's like asking her questions about it. And at first she's defensive, but he explains like, no, I'm just trying to understand. And there's this very sweet moment where it says Calvin reached over and took off her glasses. Then he pulled a handkerchief out of his pocket and wiped her tears. This gesture of tenderness undid her completely. And she put her head down on her knees and sobbed. Calvin sat quietly beside her every once in a while, patting her head. I'm sorry, she sobbed finally. I'm terribly sorry. Now you'll hate me. Oh, Meg, you are a moron, Calvin said. Don't you know you're the nicest thing that's happened to me in a long time? And it's like, okay, this is just a nice, genuine, sweet moment between these two characters where for, <laughs> for once, somebody's just listening to Meg and allowing her to, to grieve. Why this isn't her mom doing it? That's beside the point. But it's nice that somebody's doing it. And there's also well, like, I'll let you rebut in a second. Yeah, yeah. But I do, I do want to say that like, as much as it pains me to give C.S. Lewis some credit, I do think he has a point about not having romances in children's novels. Because for me, the romance just takes away from all those moments where it just feels like tacked on to something that's just like, a very genuine, affectionate thing. If this had grown into romantic love, that would have been great. 
I guess I don't know if Langle know knew that she was going to be writing this as a series of books, but whatever the case, it just felt very tacked on. And I was already very annoyed with the ending <laughs> of this book. So <laughs> anyway, please rebut. I think one, Clive is a prude, but two, <laughs> I think that because of the way our culture is for us, romance. Okay. I want to argue that, Meg and Calvin's connection is romantic, but is not sexual in a way that I think is really important. I think that why it doesn't bother me and why I actually quite like it is that I think it is that kiss is a further extension of, I like, I think it was romantic all along in this way that I think is at the core of what romance purely on its own should be, which is a very like they have this very intense connection where they do understand each other and see each other in this way that they haven't been able to have with anyone else. And I don't think that it cheapens any of the like uh, emotional connection or physical connection they have to have it be romantic. I think that that it just was from the start. It doesn't, I don't take Calvin kissing her as like, oh, horny teens, you know, like, for me, like, she's about to go into grave danger, and he feels this very strong emotional connection to her that is romantic in, like, a really, I don't want to word, use the word pure, because I also don't want to, like, denigrate, like, a sexual connection, but I, I do want to say that I think that kiss isn't, like, I don't know, your normal action movie, like, kiss at the climax. I think it's, uh-huh. there is something about the fact that they are young, and that this it has been, like, a very... Like, like you said, Meg hasn't really had someone that can be this person for her. Like, earlier in that scene you were quoting from, after Calvin's heard everything about, like, what her situation's actually like, and Meg is trying to hold back tears, and he says, why don't you cry? You're just Mm. crazy about your father, aren't you? Go ahead and cry. And, like, her mom... You mentioned, like, that this should be happening with her mom, but her mom is trying to doesn't want to grieve like she is stuck in that moment of like him being gone and i don't think she can feels she can do this with her mom because her mom is trying so hard to be like he's gonna come back at any point and she can't do this with charles wallace necessarily because as much as charles wallace like tries to take care of her he is five years old (laughs) and her little brother and then yeah meg is the first person like obviously charles wallace too but like Calvin has met who can really understand him and I think that that getting mad about it being a romance or feeling like that cheapens it kind of like is the way that our culture has to some degree like taught us to think about romance like I just think it's another version of that very intense connection and I think that I don't know it doesn't I'm not being very articulate (laughs) about this (laughs) I apologize. I think it's because I do feel so strongly that, like, if if the entire book was about how, like, Meg only realized she could be who she could be because of this, like, you know, this uh-huh. hot boy kissed her, it would be different. But no, it's just the way in which they connect is a way that is romantic, and it doesn't make it any lesser or more. I think it's it just is what it is. And so... I I really like their romance. I think it's cute. I like that it's not the focus, but it is just what their relationship is. 
I mean, again, in that first scene, he talks about how, like, gorgeous her eyes are. Oh, yeah. What a smoothie. Yeah, he talks about how she has dreamboat eyes. Yeah. <laughs> it's cute. <laughs> uh, said with all the charisma of a 14-year-old boy. Yeah. <laughs> I have no problem with kids engaging in romance. What my issue is, it's not that it's, it's not that it, well, I guess I did say it cheapens, but let me clarify then. It's not that it cheapens the previous interactions. It's just that it doesn't feel earned. If there were a couple of more conversations, not that it's like, if you have plus three conversations, then you can engage. (laughs) I don't want to treat this like a video game. It just feels like. After that conversation where he just lets her grieve, it doesn't necessarily feel like there's any big emotional conversation like that afterwards because the move, the, the plot is, <laughs> is moving so god fast. That's what lends this tacked on feeling to that kiss at the end of like, oh, it just feels like they're kissing because that's like what you would expect in a story like this with with a boy and a girl who are not related <laughs> you know it's kind of um this is a really unfair comparison but it did put me in mind of the ray and kylo ren kiss at the end of the rise of skywalker and it's and i'm not s- yeah. <laughs> now i want to fight about ray kylo ren <laughs> You can't make me want to fight about Ray and Kylo Ren right now. No, no, you're still holding on. Let go. We'll save that for later, I guess. But all I'm saying is, is that it's nice, but it just doesn't feel earned for me. And the, and I think part of it, obviously, this is subjective. And I think it's worth noting that, like, I'm a very physically affectionate guy. I love being physically affectionate. The idea of me holding hands with friends or hugging them or holding them, it doesn't immediately signal romance to me. And so when you constantly get peppered these moments of them holding hands, hugging, whatever, it just feels very superficial to then paint that as romantic just because that's like what we see in society. If a boy and a girl hold hands, it must be romantic which I think is its own kind of bull. Again, you're right. This moment is relatively innocuous. It doesn't play into anything else in the story. It doesn't even come back up in the end when they're all reunited, which just makes me feel like, uh, then why include it at all if it's just going to be just like this line that you throw away in the middle of something? Yes, I get that the these characters go on to get married, blah, blah, blah. But speaking strictly within this book, and I think a lot of people have only read this one book, it just feels like it's there because it's part of the formula. You have to have a a love interest for the main character in a science fiction adventure. So you just stick it in there. That's that's all. I don't know why we spent the last 10 minutes arguing (laughs) about this moment that really has no impact None at all on the story. Uh, just, I think, I think it's surely because, like, I, hmm, <laughs> I generally take Clive's side ab- about the like romance and kids books thing, not 
because of why he puts it in there, but because I think generally romance in kids' books tends to be weirdly, like, sexualized, if that makes sense. Like, yeah. I, like I'm currently reading this uh, middle grade kids series, and I'm like, if they're, like, 13, it's not this, like, <laughs> this level of ridiculousness, you know? Like, I just don't generally find it believable. Mm-hmm. And I think that this book is one of the few exceptions where I'm like, this is realistically how I see romance with like a 13 and 14 year old being mm. that it's very like, quote unquote, innocent in a way. <laughs> Speak. And then it just, <laughs> what? Speak for yourself, Morgan. When I was that age. Oh, oh baby. <sighs> I touched a boob, believe it or not. Yeah. I'm aware <laughs> that like 14 year olds are actually gross, but like. Do I need Whoa. to read about that in my literature? Okay, hold on. Hold on. <laughs> Me touching a boob as a 14-year-old is not gross. I Yes, that was a joke. <laughs> it was a bad one. I'm sorry. This is probably the time to mention that I'm asexual. <laughs> but yes, I, I don't want to actually further our society's thing of being gross about sex. I understand 14-year-olds want to have sex. It's totally normal. If you're a 14-year-old and you want to have sex, that's normal. You probably should not be having sex. Let's be clear. This is not an endorsement for child sex. (laughs) No. (laughs) Just that your feelings are natural and understandable. Give it a few years. Maybe, you know, read some articles. Become knowledgeable first before you start banging. Sex ed is important. Yeah. Yeah. Will these two ever talk about Meg? Find out on the next episode. Next week on Reread. See you then. It started with a whisper.